Well, that was really good. I don't know how I'm going to top that. So, uh, so first impressions go a long way, don't they? Um, when you're in a public place, you'll be in like a public setting, you'll meet a total stranger. And they'll do something or say something that gives you a first impression and you begin to believe you know everything about them and who they are as a person, right? And this is why for me recently I've had a hard time ordering food at restaurants because I don't want to announce to anybody around me what I'm actually ordering. I don't want, I don't want to say it out loud. I was at a restaurant recently and I, I wanted this item on the menu. It was the chicken tenders. But uh, the name of the item was, this is ridiculous, this is what they called it at this, it's like a family, kid kind of restaurant, but I didn't want to, they were called the Tickle Me Tenders. <laughs> and uh, that's not who I am as a person, like I'm not gonna, I'm not just gonna say that out loud, so. So when the lady came to or take my order, I was like, I'll have your chicken tenders, leave it at that. And she's like, I don't, I don't think we have the chicken tenders, I don't think we, we do that. And I'm like, please, not like this. Don't make it. Don't make this. So I slide it down to the end. I'm like, no, the th on the bottom there, the chicken tenders on the bottom of the menu. And she's like, I don't see. I don't see it. I don't know. I don't think we have. I don't know. I. <sighs> okay. It's come to this. So I kind of look around. I'm like, I'll have your, uh, the tickle me tenders. Oh, the tickle me tenders. Would you like some extra tickle with your tickle me tenders? Tickle me, tickle me, tickle me, tickle me. <sighs> I hate you. <laughs> I didn't say it out loud. I thought it, so it was a lot less sinful. But I, in my head, so, so she comes out. And, of course, sometimes this happens. They're busy. I know waitresses are busy. If you've ever done it, you're busy. So total amnesia. And she's like, she's walking around the whole restaurant. Who ordered the tickle me tenders? Who was it? Tickle me tenders. Anybody tickle me, tickle me, tender, tickle me. I'm like, well, I'm not eating today. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to make an announcement. I'm not going to stand up like, oh, I did. I'm not doing that. I don't want to give the impression to people that that's what I'm about. That's who I am. So I didn't eat. I did something else. But I wonder if your first impressions, maybe for you, they're not as big or heavy or you don't feel as much as I do managing my own PR like that all the time. But I wonder if we let God give us a first impression, and he could arrange the chess pieces and pick exactly how he's going to do it. Uh, I wonder how he would do that. And the book of John, John uh, chapter 2, is where God makes his first impression on humanity. And I wonder, this is a big deal. First impressions go a long way, right? I mean, to some degree, if you can control your first impressions, what you're really trying to do is, is dress nice or do physical things to convey maybe philosophical values you have. That's what you do. You take physical things around you and use them as symbols to convey maybe some values, some philosophical values you have. It's much not unlike how a presidential candidate might make a first impression by announcing his candidacy for president in a specific city, maybe in a specific building, maybe with specific people around him. So, so this is what Jesus is doing. This is what God's going to do in humanity. He comes down in John chapter 2, and he makes a first impression. And for those of you out in the audience, I mean, this is a big deal, because here's what's at stake. Your first impressions about people, or even about God, can go and define decades of how you perceive God, people, that relationship. I mean, first impressions are a big deal. God knows this. So God, in, in his incredible ability to arrange and create a first impression, using John, who this writer is all about symbolism. 
Everything has a symbolic purpose. God arranges the physical chess pieces around him to convey some spiritual truth about who he is and what he's about. Verse 11 in John chapter 2 says this. This is the first miraculous sign that Jesus did. And what he's saying is this, not chronologically, although it is chronologically the first miracle. He's saying this is his inaugural miracle. This is his first impression miracle. And my hope for this morning is that maybe we just put aside the impressions we've had of God and let God give us his first impression through his word. This is the miracle. This is the miracle and the lens by which we are to see who he is, what he's about. This is his inauguration speech miracle about who Jesus, who the creator of the universe is about. And I, I say we let him define it on his terms this morning. Let's deal honestly with it. So here it is. John chapter 2, verse 1. This is the setting for the inauguration, the, 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 the physical things around Jesus, the physical things around God that he's going to use to preach some loud spiritual truths about who he is. Here it is. Here's the setting. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Okay, now before I get to verse 3, I'm about to tell you. This is a miracle. So something supernatural is about to happen. God wants to use his power. And John uses this phrase a lot to reveal his glory. Pretty much the whole reason John wrote his book is to reveal the glory of God, the creator of the universe. And this is the, is the miraculous glory-revealing sign that we're supposed to use as the defining one, the one that we see this whole next campaign that Jesus is about to go on, that God is about to go on. This is the whole lens and the goggles by which we're supposed to see his mission. Here it is. Here's the crisis. You ready for the crisis? This is the crisis by which God decides to use to show off his glory. Here it is. Here's the crisis. The wine supply has run out during the festivities. No! Right? This is, this is the crisis. Okay, now I, I, I judge miracles. This is me in my human state. Okay, I look at miracles and I judge the weightiness of them, the significance of them by what they accomplish, right? Or what goes undone if they're not done? What goes undone if they don't do the miracle, if God doesn't do the miracle? So like the feeding of the 5,000. If God doesn't feed the 5,000 people, they starve. If, if God doesn't heal the leper, um, he continues to get sick and maybe he dies. If, if the wine runs out and there's no more wine, people sober up? I mean, isn't that, I don't... I mean, here it is, the God, the creator of the universe, he made the oceans, he made the stars and the galaxies, and he comes down into humanity, comes down to earth, and for his first order of business, for his first miracle, he steps into an environment where people are already a little buzzed and helps keep the buzz going. <laughs> like, I, I don't, for me, okay, now let's back up. Let's, let's deal, honestly, historically, context, context. Okay, so back in the ancient days, wine meant something very different than it does now today. It's very different. Back in the ancient Bible times, wine was symbolic. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you see this is symbolic of not just completion, but surplus and overflowing abundant joy. 
So pretty much the same as today, I guess. So, okay, so that's not that much different. So that's actually true. But here's what is different. Obviously, the alcoholic content was much lower. It's three, uh, three parts water to one part wine, so it's like less than a Bud Light. I mean, it's really low, low alcoholic content. But this is the key here. This is what, what I think, this is the spiritual symbol Jesus is trying to use here, God's going to use. Back in this time, weddings were like a week long. And they were a week-long celebration. And when, and when stuff ran out, when the wine ran out, for us, I, I mean, I don't think we can grasp this. I really don't think we can. I, I'm going to try, but I don't think we'll grasp it. It was a very shameful thing. I mean, the, the gravity of it, we can't feel. I mean, we would kind of be like, well, okay, at least this, okay, they ran out of wine, so the party's over. So what's the big deal? Back then, this was like a shame and honor society. This is a big deal. When the wine runs out, when you, when you don't have enough for the people that have come and sacrificed, maybe walked a long way, I mean, walked a long way to get, and there, you run out of stuff, you run out of wine, this is a shameful thing. I mean, this is a big deal. This is not a small thing. It's like, well, we'll forgive you, but this was pretty embarrassing. I mean, this is, this is pretty embarrassing. The egg is on their face. But still, still for me, though, I'm just as Brian reading this text, I'm going, that's the first Miracle is to wipe the egg off of two teenage boys. I mean, that's what it was. It was the master of ceremonies, probably a teenage guy, and the, and the, the groomsman, probably a teenage boy. The first miracle of the creator of the universe to share what he is all about and who he is is to wipe the egg off the face of just two teenage boys. It seems so, so small. Well, let's, let's keep reading. I got to figure this out. I don't know about you. The next... Um, the thing that happens is Jesus' mom steps onto the scene. Happy Mother's Day. Moms, here it is. So here it is. His mom comes up, and I can just picture this. I don't know about you. I can just, maybe it's my mom that I can picture doing this. But, but she just comes up, and she's like, I'm just making an observation. I'm just, no, I'm just making an observation. I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm just saying, I'm just making an observation. They have no more wine. I'm just, I'm just making an observation. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying anything. I know. Okay, here we go. We're going to do a test here. All right, kids. If you're a kid, teenager out there, all right, let's try. I'm trying to help you understand what, what is probably happening here. If your mom comes into your room and she just makes an observation, she just makes a statement, she just says, huh, this room is messy. Okay, what does that actually mean? Clean your room. Absolutely. I could hear it right away immediately. Clean your room. So she's pretty much like telling Jesus, like, hey, we should do something about this. But she's just making an observation. That's how it is. Sometimes moms, sometimes they say something, but they mean some more stuff. Like there's, they mean some other things. And Jesus is no fool. He knows this. And this is what he says. Now, I'll tell you, Jesus' response is gentle and respectful, but it is meant to be abrupt. Everything you read about this passage, the scholars, theologians, and, and, um, and thinkers and pastors that have written about this, they will tell you contextually this is meant to be a little abrupt. This is meant to, this is meant to be firm, respectful, but firm. And he addresses her not as mom because he is no longer receiving this as her biological son. He is God, the creator of the universe. He's wearing that hat. And he's addressing this as such. This is God, the creator of the universe. Remember, this is his inaugural miracle. So now he's talking as God. And he says, dear woman, that is not our problem. Other translations say that is not our business. And when he's saying our, he means myself and the Father. It is me as God, the Trinity, the triune God. It is not our business. This is not our business. And how we know it, he means that 
is the next, the next line is, my time has not yet come. He's referring to the hour by which he's going to die. This, is, this phrase appears all throughout John. He's basically saying, I'm going to deal with the shame of humanity. But not this way and not right now, in a sense. And he's talking as God, and he's saying, for God, this is, this is a small thing. This is a petty, small request. And it is, we have no business. God has no business just pouring you another glass of wine. But I love Mary's response. And I just, I, this, this, is, this whole parable is not about Mary and, and her, but I want, I just, I love her response because this is immediately how, G, how Mary responds. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Gosh, I hope I know Jesus like Mary did. I mean, don't you? Don't you? Here's, here's Mary who, for all intensive purposes, was just told no. This is an unanswered prayer. She addressed God. God said no. It's a, for all intensive purposes, an unanswered prayer. She has seen not a drop more wine. The wine glasses are still empty. And she's going around evangelizing, telling people to follow Jesus. Wow, I want to know Jesus the way that Mary did. Because I can, I'll tell you what, I'll go around telling people about Jesus after a God at work story, after something incredible happens in my life. I'll go, hey, do whatever Jesus says, because it's going to be great. But she just got told no. And she's going around saying, hey, whatever he says, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know when it's going to be, but it's going to be great. You want to do it. Don't just do a Bible study about it. Don't just meet weekly and talk about it, but you better do it. That's the miracles. When you not only hear what Jesus said, but then go and you do it. You don't want to miss it. Man, I hope I learn to pray the way that Mary did. For those of us, some of us know this story personally. Some of us have those moms who we're walking unanswered prayers, <laughs> right? Some of us, I mean, like, we're, and she's still telling us to do whatever Jesus says, even though we are examples of all the things that God said no to. And she's still saying, do whatever Jesus says. I think in a lot of ways, moms continue to carry that banner today for us. And I, I want to know Jesus the way that moms and the way that Mary did. But let's read on here. So I'll, I'll tell you this. The next thing that John highlights here is the symbol, the physical symbol of spiritual truths. Here it is. Standing nearby were six stone jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. So what Jesus is about to do, and I'm going to paraphrase the next couple verses here. What Jesus is about to do is he's about to take these ceremonial washing jars. These are for purification. Back then, um, many religions existed in the ancient times that all had to deal with humans' imperfection, with sin or injustice. Many gods required their people and their followers to either sacrifice humans, sacrifice themselves, cut themselves. You know, the prophets of Baal, if you remember that story, they cut themselves. That was very normal, but our God said, no, you're not going to pay for your sin. Somebody has to. I mean, injustice is letting you get away with it, right? When we see a crime on TV and someone gets away with it, we say someone needs to be brought to justice. That's just, that's the fingerprint of God. And so somebody has to deal with every ounce of imperfection in humanity. And God says, no, I'm not going to have you do it. I'm going to provide a substitute. And it's, a, it's the law. It's the system of the sacrificial sacrifices to the temple. And so the Jews knew that they had to purify themselves, physically wash themselves in these wash basins. They're like 30 gallons each, huge stone, six Six of them sitting around, and Jesus is basically going to repurpose the whole way that humanity tries to purify itself. And I know in our culture we're not big on shame and honor, but in some ways we all try to purify or make ourselves clean or look good. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to repurpose this. He has the servants fill it up with water. 
He has the servants take, dip some water out, and bring it to the master of ceremonies. And this is what happens next. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, it actually contextually is excessive amounts of drink to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. I, I want to say this. Um, that's a cultural reference. That's not a biblical commandment. So, you know, you don't want to walk away from this thinking that, okay, to have a biblical wedding, we have to give away expensive wine and then bring out cheap wine once everybody's desensitized to it. That's not, that's not biblical. I, I want to say this. If you walk away thinking that in any way God sanctions excessive drinking, um, you will completely miss the beauty and the wonder of who he is and what he's trying to say to you today, this morning, in this parable. If you believe that, if you walk away with any indication that God is sanctioning or condoning excessive drinking, because we know that while Jesus turned water into wine, we all know this all too well, some of us, where wine has turned homes into homelessness, right? Where wine has turned bank accounts into bankruptcy, where wine has turned marriages into crisis, and where wine has even turned life into death. So we, we know that reality, some of us, all too well. But what I can't get away from in this passage, what this passage doesn't let me squirm out from underneath of, is that the creator of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, comes down to earth as Jesus. And he showed up at an obscure, anonymous wedding in the middle of nowhere and was approached by his mom and simply asked to keep the party going and fill up the glasses of wine. I mean, the creator of the universe is asked to just simply, I mean, I, I can't, the, the smallness of that request. I mean, they don't know all the symbolism. They have no idea what they're asking. They don't have a clue what they really are asking, not unlike our situations often. They don't know. And Mary is asking the creator of the universe to go get her another cold one from the fridge. I mean, the audacity of that, the audacity of that. I mean, you could, you could hear people, if they knew, if they had the same lenses and goggles that we do, and honestly, we're dealing honestly with this text, you would, say, you would have people stand up and say, very religious people with maybe all the right intentions, and say, how dare you? How, how, how dare you reduce the creator of the universe and all of his might and all of his power to just simply pour you another so you could have a little bit longer sense of joy. What a petty request. How audacious is that? I mean, maybe this is your story where you felt like you've gone looking for temporary satisfying wine everywhere else but God. Your job, your bank account, your relationships, a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, the approval of people. And then when it's run out, when all of everything else but God has run out, you have the audacity to go bang on his door and ask him to fill it up again so you could have a little bit more joy. I mean, I mean, the audacity of that. 
You, you don't, it's not about his joy. It's not about how glorious he is. It's about just bringing back your own honor or affirmation, getting rid of your shame and whatever has run out. And you've spent your life, decades, looking for it in other places. And then you have the audacity to bang on his door and ask him to go get you another beer from the fridge to reduce the creator of the universe to that. How dare you? And for a moment in time, Jesus agrees. It is not his business. He's the creator of the universe. He filled the oceans with water, and you're asking him to fill your measly little cup with joy, your little soul. He agrees. He says, it is not my business. I am far above that. My business is so much bigger than this. And if, if the cross were not true, if the gospel were not real, this story would end on verse 4. The religious performance-based leaders would close the book and say, now go, maybe you can work it out, maybe you can do better and try harder and God will bless your job back, you'll bring the money back, you'll bring the marriage back, go work it out Monday through Saturday and then come back to the church on Sunday and we'll give you a little bit of honor if you've earned it. But how dare you ask God to just fill you up for free, to reduce him to that. But the gospel is this. It doesn't end in verse 4, does it? And for some reason, I couldn't get over this. I couldn't get over this. Jesus says, no, it's not our business. And then he makes it his business. The gospel is that he makes your empty soul wine glass his business and he fills it up with himself much better than anything else you've ever put in that glass ever before that is the gospel that is the good news of the gospel and let me tell you something the pharisees throughout the rest of this story and religious performance-based people hate that god they hate that God. He's a, that God is a fool. They watch it happen. They watch us stumble up in our own sin, not knowing the whole picture, not knowing what's going on. We just think we're just trying to have some fun in this thing called life. We bang on God's door and say, can I have a little bit more joy? Can you give me a new job? Can you give me a new marriage? Can you give me this thing? He may do that. He may not. But what he definitely does is when you bang on his door, he gives you all of himself. And it's so much better. And they watch this happen and they go, what? That God is a fool. It has lowered God's glory. It has diminished the glory of God. You've reduced the glory of the creator of the universe to just fill up a little measly human soul that has spent its life not looking for you. And now it wants you and you just, get, you just dole it out. That just diminishes your glory. That lowers your, reduces your glory to a glorified party planner who just keeps the party going. What a, what a sad, small, petty God. What a waste, they say. But they can't handle what John drops in verse 11. And this is it. This is the verse that blows me away. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his 
glory. It's his glory. I don't, um, uh, I'll, I'll tell you this. My wife and I, it was a long journey, uh, a long, long journey uh, to have our first kid. It was due in a couple days here. And it was a long journey, and the doctors uh, worked with us on it. And um, on the last kind of, this was the last, uh, the last month, Hannah came up to my study one morning, and she showed me the negative pregnancy test. And we didn't, we didn't know what was next. We knew it, was, it might very well could be the end of the line for us and what that was going to look like, what our family was going to look like. She came up. She showed me the negative uh, pregnancy test, and um, I'm going to be honest with you, in that moment, um, there were some empty, there were some empty wine glasses in our heart, in a sense, there was some, something had kind of run out that was there, and, um, but I'm not a mystical person, I'm not, you know, you know, mystical or ever hear voice or anything, but I will tell you, there was a, such a profound thing that happened next. In the midst of our silence and some tears, there was a moment where we were both just simultaneously overwhelmed with the truth that we find in John chapter 10, verse 10, and we started to talk about it at the same time. And it was that somehow we just believe this, that the gospel means this. The gospel is not that Jesus came to get you through life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that he came to just to make you even complete, that he came to just give you enough to get through whatever it is you're going through. That's not. John chapter 10, verse 10 says, I came to give life, Jesus says. But this is, he, he's so specific, he says, to give it overflowing, abundant, more than enough. And we just started talking about it, and we came to the conclusion that, and this isn't ours, isn't because we're spiritually strong. This has literally hit us like a brick wall. We're just going to pray. And we're going to thank God and, ask, and just thank him for every one of his blessings. And then we're going to say amen. And that's going to be the end of it. And so we just got on our knees. And I'm telling you, I can't explain it to you, but we were just overwhelmed with such a profound sense of completeness. The gospel isn't that we are not, we're not incomplete as a man or as a family or as a husband, as a wife. We're not incomplete, but we are actually more than over and abundant, over and abundant complete because of who Jesus is and our relationship with him. And he just impressed that upon us in a moment that we didn't foresee happening. And I am telling you, it was so sweet. It was one of the most precious moments in my entire life. And two weeks later, just in a routine, just in a routine pregnancy test, and has to do to go to the doctor that she, it was positive. And I don't know, I, I, there's, you know, I know these false negative things happen. I don't know what all happened there, but I'll tell you this. I, I, I will not, I will tell you, you're not a second class Christian because when the wine glass of whatever it is you were drinking runs out, you're not a second class Christian because it's painful and it's hard. It absolutely is. And no one should ever make you feel like it is not. It should be easy. When whatever you've been drinking for a long time, for how many years, whatever it is you've been looking for happiness and joy from in this world, when it runs out, it is painful. But I can't get away from the truth that the gospel is, is when that happens and you bang on God's door to fill it up again, he brings out something that is so much better. It is so much better. And I know, I know there's people in the room here that are hearing this and you're going, 
you know, honestly, my wine glasses are pretty full right now. My job, my bank account, my marriage, my kids, the approval of people around me, it's not run low, and it's, it's a source of joy. Remember, this is a party, and it was going on. I mean, it was, it was happy. There were people celebrating. It was good. And so there'll be people that I know that this will happen. You'll be asking over lunch, how was the sermon? You'll be like, well, it was okay. He's kind of weird and animated. But... But it just didn't, it wasn't, didn't really connect with me or I'm not there yet. And I get that. I understand that. And I can't, I'll tell you what, this is a safe place, this church, to belong before you believe if it's going to take some time. But I will tell you this, that everything other than Jesus is wine. Everything other than a relationship with him runs out at some point. And I am telling you, it's not just that it runs out, but it is so far less wonderful than a relationship with him. I have sat eyeball to eyeball with people who are weeks from death. And they say, I'm telling you, I count everything rubbish compared to knowing Jesus, even life itself. It's nothing compared to Jesus Christ and my relationship with him. And, and I know, I know some of you, might, that might involve dumping some stuff out that's in your wine glass right now, some things. And that doesn't mean quitting the job. It doesn't mean ending the marriage. It doesn't mean uh, not caring about what people think about you. It just means finding your joy, finding your hope. Finding your source of abundant life in anything else other than Jesus is just not going to be good enough. Because let me tell you this. Let me just say this. As sad and as hard and as honestly real and sad and hard as it is for things in life to run out that bring you happiness. And, and you're no second class human because it hurts. As sad and as hard as that is, it is so much sadder and so much more difficult to go life and never taste and see that the Lord is good. It is so much to go your whole life and never taste how delicious and good it is to have a relationship with Jesus. It is not his business to come down of the whole universe and to find your life and to bring joy into it where there is not joy, where there is sorrow. It is not his business, but he makes it his business for you personally. So the question is this. Are you going to raise your glass and ask him to fill it? Because he not only wants to, but it is his glory revealed to the universe to fill your glass. Let's pray. Jesus, I believe in a room this size, there's a long list that people have in their hearts of things they believe they need to be complete. And God, I pray that in this moment, you would have crossed every single thing off that list except for your name and that they would receive it, and they would accept that, and they would simply ask in the quiet stillness of their own soul right now for you to be their only wine, for you to be their only drink, and for you to fill up their life. If it means emptying everything else, Lord, help us to do it. If it means not finding our source of joy, our identity, our hope in anything else but you, would you find a way, Lord, to do it? Because, God, it is so good. It is so sweet. You know, Lord, I wouldn't trade any of the journey to have been into that moment where you revealed that to me. I pray for these people that you would do the same and that we would walk out of these doors, Lord, and the party would be brought to life again inside of our souls.
In Jesus' name we pray. In the strong name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.